0: I'll just tell you right up front that the title of the sermon as it is currently will make little or no sense today because we're not going to get far enough into this for it to make sense, Um, just so you know. So this is part one of two parts. Last week I was sitting right down here and Pastor Brent was standing right up here. And I knew what was coming, obviously. And as he's there talking and he says, This building can no longer contain us I'm just I'm like and I mean I I mean I'm like, dude, what is all this going on inside of you? You know what the rest of it is. And the rest of it is in order to become the church God wants us to become. It was a captivating rollout to grab our attention. Because the thought can be taken two vastly different ways. The first way that it can be taken is the building is physically too small for us, and therefore, you know, what do you do when you're affluent North American Christians? You know, You get bigger, you get another building, you get a new home, you get more storage units, you get bigger car, whatever. And you know, last week, I mentioned truly just tongue-in-cheek, that with our sign that said, we're moving, that we had had two offers on the property. Okay, I was totally kidding. Our church attorney called me Tuesday to let me know that by 10 o'clock Monday morning, he had two inquiries on the building. (laughs) And I said, well now, What are we talking here? You know, we can talk, right? I said, we get two people in a bidding war? I mean, who knows? He says, oh, there's more than two. And I was like, well, now, hmm. we got plenty of land out there to expand, you know. So, yeah, I was twitching a little bit. But the second way that that rollout could be taken is the building has grown too confining, meaning we rely far too much on the hope that people will come to the building of their own accord, that people will just come here because of our prominent location, that people will just out of their own curiosity or their own perceived need will drop in on a Sunday morning. Well, we're not relocating not this year anyway. (laughs) So then Pastor Brand outlined a three-faceted strategy summarized in the words pray, serve, and reach. Prayer was the first of those three strategies, and it's comprised of five activities. The five activities from which we are asking people of faith to select three. Now, if you were here last week, you did that. You saw the card. There was a little detachable thing on the bottom. If you weren't here last week, um, I think, I don't know, I shouldn't say that. Ask somebody for the card, and we'll see to it that you get one. So anyway, we asked you to select three of those and commit to those. Now, the the backdrop for these Three strategies, or the three that you pick anyway, of the five strategies, emerges from a foundation of Scripture which informs God's church that while there are many factors that enable a church to grow in both Christ-like maturity and numbers, the salient factor in church growth of any stripe is the sovereignty of God. Make no mistake about that. In his wisdom, he is delighted in using the likes of his church to become, to join with him as an integral part of the process, to be an integral part of the joy and an integral part of the work of church growth and of bringing a church and the people of the church maturity. When the Corinthian believers were caught up in their little, I'll call it church leader fan club, little event thing that was going on there at the church of Corinth, Paul admonishes them in his first letter to the church in 1 Corinthians 3, finally saying, look, I planted, because there were those guys that were like, Paul's the greatest, he rocks, man, he's the best of the best. But then there was another contingency in the church that was saying, ah, Paul's okay, but Apollos, man, Apollos rules. Let me know when Apollos is speaking. I'll be there, okay? And Paul says, no, look, I planted, Apollos watered, But God is the one who is causing the growth. Or in another translation, God's the one who gives increase. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who grows the church. God gives the increase, but he wants us all to do our part in being part of the process because then we will also become a part of the joy and we will share in that joy. And if you have ever been involved in the process of seeing an individual going from a Christ-like or Christless status in life in life to becoming a new believer in Christ or taking a new believer or an immature believer and taking them on a discipleship mentoring course into maturity, you know that there is nothing like it. Because it's eternal. And it is, honestly, you know, people search for meaning, and and most of us in North America, we, we derive so much of who we are from our secular jobs. But you haven't experienced anything until you've been a part of raising up a new believer or an immature believer to a place of maturity. Godly churches... Now, I'm going to be a little redundant here. Godly churches, meaning biblical churches, grow because God is blessing. But that doesn't mean that the churches cannot unwittingly sabotage God's desire to do something through the gathering of his followers. Now, the key word there is unwittingly. That means unintentionally or without thinking about the repercussions. It's not like they set out to be destructive, far be it. I doubt that there is rarely ever a Christ follower who admittedly decides that they have an ax to grind and by golly, they are gladly going to grind that ax for all the world to see. Not just the church, but everybody to know that they are not happy. Rather, my experience and wisdom says that the person with the ax to grind is so convinced that they are right and that their conviction is so important to the future of Christ's kingdom, they pridefully don't even think about nor care about the souring effect, the spoiling effect that their personal crusade may in fact have on the entire church. And consequently, there rarely ever seems to be much consideration for how devastating their conviction is to the holy cause that they are convinced they are actually endorsing and pushing and affirming. Over the years, I've counseled several brothers and sisters in Christ, some from other churches even, who because of the uncomfortable nature of their conversation want to talk to somebody not involved with their church, but also within our own church. And that as I'm sitting there listening to to them, even while their, their complaint may even be legitimate, it is they who are not in step with the rest of the particular church. And while I may sympathize with that, and I let them know that, I instruct them that the better part of wisdom and godliness is to quietly quietly make your case known to the right people that is to those who have an ability to do something about whatever the issue might be but after all is said and done if the church is not going to do what you believe they should be doing there really are only two honorable choices only two godly choices and by the way, not going to church anymore is not on the list. Just this morning, I have, out of my own curiosity, the thought came to mind, and I went on the internet very quickly to Barna Research. He's a Christian pollster. it has been around for many decades. Very reliable. And he noted, and this was from just uh, a year and a half ago, only one-third of professing Christians in America go to church. One third. Which explains an awful lot about so many things about our society and about our country and about our politics and about our schools and about... We could go on and on. Only two godly choices. The first... Is to quietly accept the church's determined course of action, even if you disagree. And yet, and yet, we're talking about a godly choice. You've been heard. You've stated your case, and the church is like, "Well, we're j- now, you know, what? It's just not where we're headed, or that's not what we do here, or wh- whatever it happens to be." You can disagree, but you still commit to being a fully contributing member in praying, serving, and reaching. That takes a mature Christian. However, in good old America, where Sinatra's I Did It My Way could very well be the national anthem, those who follow another king named Jesus need to be reminded that the cause of Christ is greater than the individual. The cause of Christ is greater than even the local church. And I have noted and actually many pollsters also have noted that rarely are disputes within churches because of moral, ethical, or doctrinal issues. They're usually about personal preference. When Jesus taught the disciples how to pray in Matthew chapter 6 and in Luke chapter 11, he said, Pray this way. Hallowed, holy be thy name. The next thing he comes out with is thy kingdom come. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not Lord, my will be done. My kingdom come. But yours. It's easy to forget that we are all of us involved in a universal divine plan that is far greater than any of the individual participants in that plan. So there's only two godly choices when faced with dissatisfaction by your church. That was the first. The second one, though unfortunate, is nevertheless a godly choice. That is to admit to yourself that you can no longer in clear conscience or in good conscience, conscience pray, serve, reach, and contribute under the authority or under the umbrella of that particular church. And therefore, again, absenting yourself from church altogether is not an option, but then you need to find somewhere else where you can pray and serve and reach and contribute. These are honestly the only two good options. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Rome, and although the context in this was more of a a cultural nature that was going on in, in the world around them, and he says, Insofar as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. Interesting, and I point this out with people when I'm talking to them about it, if it's relevant to their situation. It doesn't say that it's possible to be at peace with all men. It says, though, insofar as it depends on you, meaning where you are concerned, make sure that basically your soul is clean, your hands are clean, your feet are clean, your lips are clean in the situation. Doesn't mean that you're going to be at peace necessarily with the other person, but make sure it's on them and not on you. Christendom is unfortunately sprayed with endless examples of a Christ follower or Christ followers who continue to just hang around the local church, being chronically angry with that church. And that never serves the believer. It certainly never serves the church. And it does not serve the cause of Christ well at all. There's just too much biblical counsel. There's too many Christ-like examples along with living illustrations from the Word as well as blatant commands as to what constitutes mature Christian living. The pleas in Scripture to exist in unity as the body of Christ on earth are multitudinous. Paul writing from a jail cell reveals his heart and his burden to the churches at Ephesus and Corinth in particular this morning, but there are, but two others also. He says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, meaning you, the members at Ephesus and Corinth, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Well, what is that calling? We are called, in the language of Paul, to be ambassadors of Christ as though God were making an appeal through us to be reconciled to God. An ambassador becomes the physical, the visual, and the verbal representation of whoever it is that had the authority to send them out as an ambassador. If you are an ambassador, for example, in the in the United States government, do you realize what that means? It's not just a title. It means that whatever the particular country is that you are an ambassador to, you go with the authority of the man in charge of the President of the United States. Beyond that, it also means that your opinions, that your ideas, that your assessments, what you might do in a particular situation have to be relegated to the heap of non-existence. As an ambassador, you represent the one who sent you. What you think, what's important to you, what you do are absolutely irrelevant. And you know what happens if you depart from that. We've seen that a few times, at least I have in my lifetime at the national level. The ambassador suddenly gets jerked away from the country he was in, and you don't hear about his name or her name anymore. So this morning I ask, do we fathom the importance of that responsibility and trust that God puts on every believer to discharge the mission of God to the world, seeking its reconciliation to the Lord God Almighty? Paul piles it on as if to say, yeah, so, so, so Christ followers... What are you thinking? God's given the ministry of reconciliation and yet in our own churches we're not reconciling but we're dividing. I'm of Paul. Yeah, I'm of Apollos. What is so important that you would punish the church by withholding the same grace by which you are graced by God every day? In our lives. Exactly. And I believe this is why Paul ends his encouragement to the churches in 2 Corinthians the way he does. Let me put it in context for us. 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Now, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now, therefore, which means, in light of that, we now are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. And so we beg you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Now, here's the end of that. He, meaning God the Father, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. All right, let's play uh, make believe here for a minute. Imagine the angel of the Lord. Notice I said the angel of the Lord, which means it's a manifestation of the Lord. It's not an angel, a messenger of the Lord. And he appears to you, or let's just say to to Brother Gumball or Sister Gumball or whoever, and appears in the quiet of getting ready for bed or perhaps getting up in the morning. If you have a spouse, your spouse is is downstairs or wherever in a different part of the house, and it's just you alone, and all of a sudden there appears the angel of the Lord. And the angel of the Lord says, so how are you? How is your church, my bride? Who have you blessed lately for me? Who have you as my bond servant, recently greeted with a loving welcome? Who are you praying for lately? in my name? Who have you forgiven lately for my name's sake? Do you ever think of what that means when the scriptures talk about for Christ's sake? About the only time we hear that today is as an expletive. It means for the sake of all that Jesus did in becoming man and living and dying and rising again for us. What have you done for my sake? In my forgiveness of you, who have you forgiven for my sake? Who are you praying for lately in my name? Who have you forgiven lately for my name's sake? Who are you loving who is unlovable to you like you were to me? Remember my words that Paul penned. But remember, inspiration means they are my words. To the church at Ephesus chapter 4, I implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In other words, what have you done for me? What are you doing for me? And what will you do for me? Now, I failed to mention that this angelic encounter occurred in North American. North American cheap grace gospel land. And so this Christian replies, "Uh, Well, um, (laughs) see, Lord, not by works of righteousness I have done, but according to your mercies you saved me. Titus 3.5 Ooh. I'm saved by grace, Lord. Listen, Lord, um, this should impress you too. Okay? I came up in the Awana program, so I've memorized Scripture. And I even won the Timothy Award. Those of you in Awana know what that is. By grace, I have been saved through faith and of myself as a gift of God, not of works, Lord, lest I should boast. So what's with all these questions about what have I done? What are you doing? What will you do? What do you, what do you, what do you, I'm saved by grace in cheap grace gospel land. God's taken aback. Well, hmm, I stand corrected, child. Oh, but wait, wait, uh, have you read my book titled James lately? Huh? What use is it, my brethren? If someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? If a brother or a sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, Oh, oh, oh you poor thing. Hey, go in peace, but be sure. I'm going to be praying for you. Be warmed and filled. <laughs> and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body. What use is that? <laughs> Last week, when Pastor Brent used that example, you right, sitting there watching the TV, and you get the, the the commercials, you know, for the agencies that are feeding the the hungry little children, right? You got the big-eyed little children and the big little bellies and everything else. He's like, oh, oh, that's oh, that that even exists anywhere in the world. That's just that's unconscionable. That shouldn't happen. Click next. But you feel better about the fact that you, you had those feelings about it. It disturbed you. And true confessions here, and I am not proud of this. I cannot tell you in how many different ways and shapes that that occurs in my life. Oh, my goodness. Look at that, Pert! What in the? How would? Why would they? Why would they? Oh, that dear thing! <laughs> Change the channel, turn up the music. Okay, maybe even offer up a quick prayer, which that's boy, that's a step anyway. Actually, I usually do that. Okay, let's, you know, if we're putting it out there, tell the good with the bad. It might minor good, but and then I say to myself, so do you feel good now about that? <laughs> you did nothing. Except feel bad for them. So when Brent brought that up, I'm like, dude, you didn't have to go there, did you? Come on. I'm the pastor. I shouldn't be feeling these sorts of things. I have nothing to repent of. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Even so, James says, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. But someone may well say, well, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one, James says. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Uh, no. Because, and and this will impress you also, God, angel, I happen to know that the book of James wasn't even accepted by everyone in the early church. (laughs) Martin Luther had a big problem with the book of James. Because it contradicts so much of what the Apostle Paul says. I mean, the Apostle Paul basically writes to disregard the book of James. The angel of the Lord says, hmm. Okay, so help me out here. I, I, I don't recall that. Um, uh, okay, uh, ooh, I wanna. I know I know, who, boy, I'm not sure I can put my finger on it. I th- um, uh, the angel breaks in and says, "Well, was it maybe my letter to the Galatians or to the Romans? Still nothing. How about Galatians 2? Nevertheless, Paul writes, knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Yes, that's it! I knew it was there. just couldn't remember the address. The angel plays for a minute, says, boy, you know, the things that get by me. never realized there was that big contradiction in there in my word. Well, unfortunately, the rest of this will be resolved next week. (laughs) I told you we wouldn't get there. And I want to also say this. Don't think for a minute, all right, that the whole beginning of this, which was an introduction to not just the rollout, but to everything that we're leading to in the whole James Pauline epistle controversy. That I have some kind of an axe to grind standing up here by the way this whole message started out. And I know the tendency sometimes is for us to sit there and go, Wow, what's going on in our church? That the pastor's preaching on this stuff like this, you know? Who's he trying to get a message to? Right? Human nature is human nature. There's nothing new under the sun, and I assure you that our church is just like everybody else's church. Yes, amen, thank you. But no, it's not like I'm sitting there hoping, oh Lord, let Brother Gumball get this message, let Sister Susan get that message this morning. Because if I have something to say to you, and this goes not just for pastor sheep, This goes for brother to brother, sister to sister. According to Matthew 18, 15 and forward, right? If you have something against your brother or your sister, you go to them. And if they don't listen, then you take someone with you. And if they don't listen, then you take them before the church. And if they don't listen, they're put out of the church. It's called church discipline. So I just don't want you to think, wow, really are things that messed up here at church? No more messed up than usual. Isn't that encouraging? No more messed up than any other evangelical church, Bible-believing church, because it is comprised of sinners. And it's led by sinners. But next week, you will see, there is a solution to all of that. And that is where we are going and have to go as part of moving Forward to 750. Let me have you stand. Uh, let's see. I'm trying to remember. I, I thought I had an elder praying this morning for service. Maybe not. Okay. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for the words of Rebecca. Thank you for the leadership of Pastor Hunt up at New Hope. Father, we pray, thanking you for giving us the privilege and the joy of being a part of that work, such a small part, but yet a big part nonetheless. And Lord in heaven, when we are in those pointed places of fleshly human passion, by your spirit, help us to pause. And to put ourselves at the foot of that cross again. To stare in the face, in the eyes of our, risen, of our yet risen Savior. Being crucified for my sins. Pouring out His love for the covering of them. And help us to likewise share what is truly Christian love toward our brothers and sisters who get under our skin as we all do sometime or another. Thank you for your mercy and grace. In your name we pray. Amen.